Um, one, of the, one of the things that has been most um, true about my 50 years of life is I've spent most of those 50 years on some sort of team, uh, whether it's a, a ball team or a musical team. Some of you don't know, I was a, a, a trained violinist, so I actually played in orchestras in the symphony uh, in Atlanta. Uh, no, Stephen, I will not play uh, here. But I've spent time on musical teams, uh, on ministry teams. Uh, I've done some consulting work for military teams and corporate teams. Uh, in fact, I'm, my, I view my family as a team. I should refer to my family as Team Witherington. And, uh, and as I was studying this passage, so much of uh, my work with teams over the years kind of came out with this passage because two things I would say over those, you know, 30 plus years of working with teams, I would say characterize what I, I think are critical things that a team has to do. And the first one is uh, that the team has to have an appropriate measure of pressure. And all teams, whatever they're trying to do, whether they're trying to sell, uh, sell, sell things in a business thing, a military trying to accomplish things, a family trying to raise kids, there's an amount of pressure that's necessary when you're on a team. But then there's also an unnecessary amount of pressure where expectations and hypocrisy and failure and guilt and shame, and we all know what that's like. And so one of the, one of the things I think is critical about leadership and, and having high-functioning teams is that there's an appropriate amount of pressure that the team can endure. The second thing is that it's critical that that team periodically, and maybe more often than not, pulls back, zooms out, and gains a bigger perspective about what they're doing. Because it's easy to get lost in the details of the day-to-day, -day, of parenting, of business, of the military, or whatever it might be. But to zoom out and see a big picture of what's actually taking place and needs to happen. And that's exactly what David does in this Psalm of Ascent uh, about unity, is he's focusing on unity. And he gives us a very relational example in Aaron, which we're going to talk about, which is gonna relieve some pressure about what unity actually is. And then he zooms way out to a 9,000 foot mountain called Hermon and tells us about what the dew of Hermon is like on the mountains of Zion. And he pulls us back into a bigger perspective and we'll look at that as well. So let's, let's first learn the passage. What, what, what is actually being said here? And then I'll, I'll try to apply it to our day. Verse one, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Some of, some, if you have a different translation that you read from, which is great, the, it may not have the word behold there. Uh, it may just have an exclamation mark at the end. Well, that exclamation mark is actually a Hebrew word that gets translated sometimes, behold. It's, it's, it's a word that's meant to capture your attention. It's an exclamation word. Hey, listen up, behold. I'm about to say something that's pretty exciting. And that's what the word behold here means. And what he says that's exciting, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That's the attention grabber. Hey, listen up. I'm about to tell you that something is really good and pleasant. Those two words put together uh, really get at sort of duty, good. The word good literally is, it's appropriate, it's right that brothers live together in unity. And there's something pleasant about this. There's something aromatic about this. It smells good, feels good, tastes good, looks good. There's something beautiful, if you will, about the unity of God's people. So it's good and it's pleasant. In fact, one, one, of, the, one of the guys that I, I, I read often when I'm preparing for a sermon, he did a word study where those two words are put together in the Psalms and it's always around the praise of God. And that's exactly what we're, we're talking about here. 
because this psalm, uh, this, this, this section of the psalms from Psalm 120 to 135, I think it is, is called the Psalms of Ascent, meaning these were psalms that were, that were sung or read as the people were on their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate some of the festivals and feasts that were going on. They were, they were in place to remind Israel that though the world may be crumbling around you, the kingdom as it was in David's day was full of division and divisiveness. There was a time each year and multiple times a year to come together and remind ourselves of the unity of praising God and to have the purposes of God in mind. And that's exactly what he's referring to when he says dwells together in unity, that these people, the people of God come together, they re- reunite their hearts in the praise of Yahweh and in the purposes of Yahweh. And it was that simple. And the word brothers there is a universal word for the people of God, the congregation. So right off the bat, what he is saying here is, it is good, appropriate, and pleasant, uh, beautiful for God's people to dwell together in unity in their praise of God, and in their reminding of the purposes of God. And then he gives us two similes for all us English majors, because there's like there, right? A simile uses like or as. Two similes here to uh, metaphors, examples, whatever you want to say about what does this unity look like. The first one I'm calling a relational one because it deals with a man named Aaron and, and his role. Let's look at that, verse two. It, this unity, is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robe. Oil, biblically speaking, had several roles. Predominantly, it was uh, to demonstrate gladness. You can, you can read in the, the, the prophets about the oil of gladness. It was, uh, it was an anointing uh, mechanism. You anointed people, you consecrated people, you set people apart. Uh, the, the, the oil poured upon Aaron was a consecrated uh, gesture to set Aaron apart. He, Aaron was the high priest, and uh, the, the priests under Aaron were sprinkled with oil. Aaron was poured. It was poured upon Aaron. Uh, and notice, notice how it describes how this oil is on his head. It's running down his beard. It's on his collar of his robe, on down, and actually, in, in that, that that word collar extends actually to the bottom of the rope. What we're, the picture we're to get here is this oil is not in restrictive mode. It is just flowing. It's all over the place. It's sort of a, a messy anointing, if you will. There's oil all over Aaron. And what was Aaron's role in Israel? Well, Aaron was in that day, because God had instituted the sacrifices, Aaron was to stand in the mediatory role between God and Israel and offer sacrifices for the atoning of sins. That when people came to God in worship, Aaron and his team of, of priests would offer sacrifices saying, folks, your sins are forgiven. God loves you. Your sins are forgiven. So right here, this overabundance of oil is to scream to us that our unity must be filled with this abundance of grace and forgiveness from God and to each other. It flows straight from God, overflowing on top of Aaron's head, down to the collar of his robe, to the extent of all of God's people. And as, and as you, it doesn't take much of a leap to see this connection to Jesus. Jesus is the great high priest. He is the fountain of o- anointing oil. And he, from the head of the church, flows for grace and forgiveness. And so the first thing we see here is that our unity 
is relationally connected to that you're forgiven and I'm forgiven and that's the common ground. No matter what diversity we might have of culture, of thought, of background, of story, of age, we meet at the common ground of God's gracious forgiveness in Christ because Aaron is the anointed one with oil. So with, with Team Witherington, we... Uh, our, our, when our kids were young, we, we spanked our children. Now, right there was a moment of division in the congregation. I'm just saying. Some of you went, oh. some of you went, yeah, you're right, good job, yeah, right? Well, we spanked, okay? You can judge me later or you can congratulate me later. But, but our chosen mechanism for spanking was a wooden spoon. Uh, it didn't break. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, it was, it was, it was uh, easy to access. It was clear this was, this was the mechanism that if you, if you broke Team Witherington's rules, this would be your punishment, and, you, and we spanked our kids. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a last resort for us, but we, we did it. But over time, that spoon, we started calling that spoon the gospel spoon, and here's why. As our kids got older and, and as they could understand, we would say something to the degree of this. Listen, Sarah... You've broken the rules of the house. And, and I, as your father, am gonna need the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God to give you this punishment without being angry, without being resentful, without being harmful. I need grace right now to give this punishment to you. And you, Sarah, are gonna need the grace of God to receive it without being defensive, shamed, guilted, whatever. And so we would, we would have that as they got understanding age. And most of the time it was Danielle and I checking each other. Are, are we approaching our discipline of our children with the gospel spoon where we're doing this out of the overflow of the grace of God in our life and our kids are receiving it at the overflow of the gospel in their life? That's how we, that's how we did our discipline. And over time, uh, some of the people, men and women that I was in on teams with, they started seeing us doing this and we started implementing this on our, on our, on our ministry teams. And so we, one Christmas uh, several years ago, I gave everybody on my staff team a wooden spoon. And I, because that year we had learned, we, we were in a dialogue about, hey, we're, 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 you know, we got 50 or 60 people on this team and we're, we're really different. So we're at each other at times. We're disagreeing on different things. There's conversations that I need to come and I would say, Luke, I need to have a conversation with you. You're gonna need the gospel to hear what I have to say. I'm gonna need the gospel to say it in a way that's honoring to you. So I would put the gospel spoon on the table. And that's exactly what this is, this is saying here. The, 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 the oil poured upon the high priest's head is a reminder that you and I, to be unified in, in, in the body of Christ, are gonna need the gospel. We're gonna to need to know that I'm forgiven, you're forgiven. And if we come to that posture at the table, we can then address our disagreements. This relational assembly reminds us of the abundant grace that flows from God to his people. All right, now verse three. Not only do we have a relational example, he gives us a creational example. And this is where he zooms out. Verse three. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Geographically, this will help so much to understand the geography here. Mount, Mount Hermon 
was up in the north of the Palestinian area. And the snow melts and the rain that happened in those mountains began, were the headwaters of the Jordan River. And the Jordan River flowed down to Jerusalem, which is called Zion, the city of God. It would flow down and ultimately end up with the Dead Sea. And so you went from uh, incredibly flourishing terrain to very desert arid terrain. You, you get the picture. And what he's saying here is this mountain, Hermon, uh, was, was such a, was such an, had such an effect on the climate. And, and if you know mountains, I, you know, a few months ago, I was up in New Hampshire and I, and, I, and I went to the top of Mount Washington, which has the historically the worst weather uh, recorded in the United States, maybe even in the world. And it's because, and they gave us the, they gave us the, the, clim, the climatology of this. There are multiple jet streams that converge right at the top of Mount Washington, and Mount Washington dictates the weather for the surrounding areas of New Hampshire, Maine, and Vermont in that way. That's very similar to what's happening here with Mount Hermon, is the, the moisture that was on Mount Hermon created such a dew across the other mountains of Zion that the, the, the fields and the, the, the mountains just flourished. There was greenery. And that's the picture he has here. Is he's saying, hey, this unity that you have, you need to zoom out and see the bigger picture of what dew falling on Hermon, from Hermon falling on Zion is like. Now, what about this, this idea of Zion? Because look at the end of that verse three, because he says, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. What does the there refer to? Well, immediately it's referring to there, the place of the Zion mountains, because that was actually, a, there's actually GPS coordinates for Zion, right? But biblically speaking, Zion was much more than just a locale on the globe, on the global map. It, it, it personified the city of God, where God would dwell. And then if you back up even further, eschatologically, when we read Revelation, God is gonna reign over Zion as king where all the nations, all the peoples will come and there will be a global unity around Zion as God reigns over Zion. So right here in this Psalm 133, the dew falling on Zion is much bigger than just a uh, nourishment of a few geographical places. It is the flourishing of the nations. That's why Stephen chose the songs this morning. Let the nations be glad. Why? Because there's such joy to think that the dew of God's holy mountain is going to fall over all the earth and all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed with life forevermore. That is an incredible vision. And that's what David is talking about with unity. In fact, Jesus himself when he was on the earth. We're gonna study this prayer in August, John 17. I do not ask for these alone, but I also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So unity has a relational component where we come to that table of unity for given men and women offering that grace as abundant as the oil flowing on Aaron's robe. And we come at a creational where we zoom out and see, hey, we don't need to get lost in the little minutiae things that are going on. Let's zoom out and see the big picture of what God's doing in all of Zion for all the peoples. All right, let's, let's, let's apply this. And I'll be honest, this, this, was, this is a difficult passage to apply. Uh, one, because it takes careful consideration of what's going on in David's day, what's going on in our day and what will be going on in 
100 years from now. And so what I did was I, I looked in several different commentaries about uh, how different people from different places applied this passage. And I found one that was highly intriguing. And this came from John Calvin's uh, commentary on the Psalms, written roughly around 1530 AD. All right, let that land on you. 500 years ago, a pastor in France was trying to apply Psalm 133 to his congregation, to his people. This is what he said. Remember, this is 500 years ago. The peace which David recommends is such as begins in the true head, flows from God. And this is quite enough to refute the unfounded charge of schism and division which has been brought against us, the church in Geneva, by the papists. That was their term for the Catholics. While we have given abundant evidence of our desire that they would coalesce with us in God's truth, which is the only bond of our holy union. This is pretty incredible. What was going on in 1530 was the, was the onset of the Reformation, where the, the reformers were trying to do uh, right by the scriptures and, uh, and attack the heresies theologically and in practice that were going on among the papists which were the Catholics. But did you hear his spirit? It was flowing from God, and it's a desire that we maintain our holy union as the people of God. It wasn't this combative, arrogant, self-righteous approach. David, I mean, uh, Calvin was seeking to do what was right by the scriptures while maintaining unity amongst the people. Powerful stuff 500 years ago. So that led me to say, okay, here we are in the 21st century, 2023, Lexington, Kentucky. What is, what is our schism? What is our issue? What is our cultural moment that we should apply this unity to? And there, there could be a thousand. But here's, here's where my heart went. I think our, our moment is the overly individualistic and personalized culture that we live in. Here's what I mean. Right now, if I ask you to pull out your cell phone, which has an insane amount of information personalized for you, right? So right now, if you and your wife started talking about Pizza Hut, by the time you got home, you'd have three emails and four ads on your Facebook page about all kinds of pizza in Lexington. Because somebody's listening. We're not gonna get into that, but. <laughs> the algorithms are there, but it's highly individualized and personalized, you know that. And if I said to you, I want you to pull out your cell phone and I want you to text 50 people right now. Every one of you could do it. And you could text something so personal and intimate or so angry and divisive that it would feel like you're in a relationship with those 50 people. Really? We're that close with 50 or 100 or some of you have thousands of contacts. But our, our phones, our culture has made us believe we're individually and personally connected to all these people. I mean, some of us have hundreds, if not thousands of friends or followers on our social media pages. Are we really friends with that many people? But what this is doing, because of this overly individualistic and personalized culture, we can choose who we want to be unified with according to our preferences. Just like the algorithms, now I can choose to be unified in God's people with whoever kind of aligns with me. Politically, worship style, parenting style, food style. 
And I want to say that is not what this unity is talking about. Some of these issues are indeed significant. I don't want to, I don't want to downplay them. But if the standard of our unity is that you and I see eye to eye on all things, then we will never be unified because I will either hide my true thoughts from you or I will judge you for your thoughts on a number of things. And we'll see it in a second. And how I see this playing out mostly in my own life, in the lives of people I pastor and my family, is what one of my mentors called vain imaginations. Vain imaginations. You know how this works. So if I ask you to text 25 people right now, and you text one of them, and 10 of them respond, hey, thanks, you know, happy emoji or crying emoji, whatever it is, and 15 don't reply to your text, what do you do? You start imagining why. What? Oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't see them at the pool. Oh, I didn't contact them on their birthday. Oh, they're mad at me because I wore shorts to church. Oh, right? You start imagining what they might be thinking. Vain imaginations. Or if I make a comment on a social media post and people respond or don't respond, I then begin to imagine why'd they say that? why they did not say that? Why'd they go there? Or if I read an article of someone I agree or disagree with, I start creating vain imaginations about what they may or may not believe about a host of issues. You, you see what happens when you have a highly individualized culture that's personalized to you? Now you're trying to seek all these things that you can apply unity to when it's really not unity. And I think what all this creates is a sense of false unity, a faulty unity that the Bible does not espouse. And it's a fragile unity because it's easily broken. It's easily broken because we have different political views. Or it's easily broken because I said spanking from the pulpit. It's easily broken because of a host of things that Psalm 133 is not talking about. Now, let me give you a really relevant example, okay? If you're a member of our church or you're a, a long-standing uh, attender, you got an email this week that says, hey, we're, we're painting, uh, we're changing the colors of our walls and our carpet. Uh, there's a sign out there that says, under construction. Last night at the wedding, one of my best friends and I, we were talking, he, and he read the email thoroughly. He had pulled up the color swatches on his things. Man, I really like this one. And I was like, that's really cool. And I thought, okay, here we go. Here we go. Some of you are going to absolutely love the new colors these pews are going to be. Some of you are going to love it. Some of you are going to hate it. Some of us are really indifferent. I don't care. Through all of this, the committee is wanting to create a more welcoming and warm and honoring place for worship and fellowship, but none of it, listen, none of these changes has anything to do with biblical unity. We don't have to see eye to eye on the carpet color. It doesn't matter. Now, we're going to do everything we can to make it relevant to the most people. But do you understand how something, I mean, isn't it a joke in the world? Churches, churches split over the color of the carpet. Well, that's not real funny, is it? Because it happens. Is it because of the color of the carpet? No, it's because we've elevated unity to places we shouldn't be elevating it. And so my plea to you is because some trivial is the remodel. That's just relevant right now. But there's a host of other things that we deal with in a congregation this big. We got generational gaps. We got personal preferences. We got cultural differences is to maintain the unity that the Bible talks about. And it's simple. It's two things that I come to you as a forgiven sinner and you come to me as a forgiven sinner. And we meet at that table. And if we disagree, fine, we disagree because the gospel spoon is on the table and we can go there. It doesn't affect our unity. And then the second thing is, when we're tempted to get mired down in 
fabric. Let's zoom out and remember, let the nations be glad because the people in Africa really do not care what color our nice cushioned pews are. They don't. They just don't care. What they care about is that Yahweh is praised among their people, that the, the, the flourishing of the, the poor elevates, that the demons that are in the city that I'm going to in Togo next week are, are fleeing because the gospel is ringing. That's what this unity is about, and that's what will bind us together both today and in years to come and centuries to come. Amen? All right. Listen, we're, we're going to come to this table. And every, I mean, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty astounding that every sermon can actually end at this table because it's actually the purpose. But think about, think about this table. You and I are going to come to this table as, as different people with different backgrounds, different experiences, different cultures. And that's what Jesus gave us here. He gave us first a relational dynamic here. This is my body given for you. This is the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. So if there was the ultimate gospel spoon table, it's right here, friends. You get to come with other sinners around the table of your Savior. And he says, just like the oil poured upon Aaron's head, I have lavished my grace and love upon you. Come and eat and be glad. And then what he told his disciples is, I will not eat of this meal again. Until that day when I'm reigning over Zion as king of Zion and all the nations have come and we as one global, cosmic, eternal body dwell in unity with our Savior as he is the king of Zion. And at that point, the holy dew of heaven will fall over all the earth and flourishing will be everywhere. So come to this table with that perspective. Do away with the minutia of what might divide us and elevate the gospel of Jesus Christ and the unity of what God's doing in Zion this morning. Amen? All right, let's pray together and then I'll, I'll transition us to the Lord's Prayer. Oh God, I pray that Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church would be a people that embodies the humility and graciousness espoused here by Aaron, that we would be people quick to forgive, that we would get rid of vain imaginations to and we would choose to pour out love and forgiveness and grace to each other and to the world around us. And then, Lord, I pray that we would be a people that keeps the big picture in mind of what you are doing all over our city, all over the world. You are making for yourself one people who have one faith, one baptism, one Lord. And I pray we'd live in that unity together. So Lord, now as we come and taste and see what this unity brings us and costs us, Lord, I pray that you would uh, unify our hearts. And so Jesus, now we pray together as one body as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread Give us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.